Welcome back, everyone. This is the Exxon. I am Rob McConnell. We're coming to you from our broadcast center in Hamilton, Ontario, Canada. If you'd like to send me an email, exxon at exxonradiotv.com on all social media sites, TV, and our website where you can listen to the Exxon 724365 at com. And the Exxon Radio Show is being brought to you around the world on the Exxon Broadcast Network, the Good News Radio Network, and uh, radio stations and satellite programming providers right around this great, big, beautiful world of ours. My guest this hour is Diana Bonney, and Diana hopes to encourage a better legacy surrounding the epidemic of suicide, which now claims more lives than war, murder, and natural disasters combined. She is an advocate for those, like herself, who are navigating the silent aftermath. Her work is focused on creating a healthier public dialogue and healing the people left behind. Blogger, healing advocate, and view author, you can now learn more about Diana's work at livingonthefaultlines.com. Joining me now is Diana Bonney. And Diana, welcome to the X-Zone. Hi, Rob. Thanks so much for having me. I love being here. Well, we enjoy having you with us, Bonnie, uh, Diana. Diana, tell, tell me about your story and why you're speaking about suicide. Well, the primary reason is that I have three children, and I was my life was completely derailed. Uh, it'll be four years ago this past August when I discovered um, my husband had gotten himself into a lot of trouble, and he took his life. And I, you know, woke up one day, I don't know, probably three or four days after that, and looked at my three children and, you know, began to understand the silence and the taboo surrounding uh, suicide was quite prevalent. And I um, had this very fortuitous meeting with a gentleman who was an acquaintance of mine, probably around 55 years old. This was probably a week after my husband died. And he had heard what had happened to me and asked me to go to coffee and just, you know, share the story. Mm-hmm. And after I finished everything that had happened, he, he looked at me and, and said, Diana, I have never told anyone this before. But when I was 13, my father committed suicide. And my mother forbade me from ever speaking of it or him again. And then he collapsed onto me and started crying. And I, you know, really in that moment realized that this right here, I was holding the 13-year-old boy, and I had my, my youngest son at the time was 12. My other two children were 15 and 16. And this was, you know, really their future. If I didn't proactively step into this experience and really try and change it. So that's really the basis of where the work, you know, kind of started for me. Why aren't we talking more as a society about this suicide epidemic? Why are we or why are we not? Why are we not? Ooh, I, you know, I, I, it's such a fearful subject for people. I mean, I, it's a really interesting, Rob, when you, when you bring it up, 
people have a tendency to either, you know, step right into it with an open heart mm-hmm. uh, or they it's almost like they've been assaulted. They, you know, they step away, they, they freeze up. And I think a lot of it has to do with just our inability to deal with death in general and, you know, coming to terms with our mortality. And suicide is something that, you know, really is... It's always been kind of enshrouded in all of these religious taboos and, and different things. So now that it's happening more and more, I just don't think people have a, a language for it. I don't think they know how to speak about it comfortably and, you know, integrate it into the vernacular of society, which we really are going to have to do because it just it keeps escalating. I know for a fact, from a personal experience, that suicide knows no age knows no religion, affiliation, knows no color, knows no creed. And why I say this, Diana, is my uncle, who was, I would say, in his late 60s, had enough of life one day, and he decided to drive his car around the, the, um, the wigwags and the, the arm that comes down or before, you know, to block traffic from going on train tracks. Mm-hmm. Well, he drove his car around and stopped his car on purpose and waited for an oncoming train to to hit him, and that's how I lost my uncle. And I saw firsthand mm-hmm. the devastation that followed within the family, firsthand. So right. I, I applaud what you're doing, and I agree with you that we should talk about this we should work together as a society in in doing something about it. And I hope that you and I can accomplish something tonight here on the other side of this commercial break. Diana Bonney, please stand by. Exonation Diana Bonney is our special guest this hour. Her website is livingonthefaultlines.com. That's www.livingonthefaultlines.com. And Diana Bonney and I will be back on the other side of this two-minute commercial break. As we continue here in the X-Zone from our broadcast center in Hamilton, Ontario, Canada. My name is Rob McConnell. Don't go away. Exonation, uh, Diana Bonnie is my special guest. She is a lady who is doing what she can to encourage a better legacy surrounding the current epidemic of suicide. Her website is www.livingonthefaultlines.com. Diana, why do you think that suicide is on the rise? Ooh, that's a big question, isn't it? I, you know, I, there's, I think it's so multifaceted because um, my take on it is that there's just, despite all of this technological connectedness that we supposedly have, you mm-hmm. know, this 24-7 kind of Internet stuff, I, I think we're living in a time where people feel more isolated and disenfranchised than ever before, really. And, you know, our youth, we've got a lot of bullying. You look at our war veterans in America where the, the numbers are huge. Yeah. And, you know, you have to wonder whether anyone is equipped to see and come home and, and integrate the atrocities of mankind at war. 
And and then you have a huge um, increase in the baby boomer population, which, you know, your uncle would speak to that, um, where, you know, people just get to a point and think, is this it? This this isn't really what I bargained for. I'm taking care of my kids. I'm taking care of my parents. So I think there's, you know, a multitude of reasons. And it's very unfortunate that, um, you know, we, we keep looking at data and statistics. And I think really what we have to do is look more to the human element of what's happening here. Statistically, what is the number one cause of suicide? The number one cause in terms of how they actually kill themselves or the, the um, reason. depression or that kind of thing. Yeah. You know, I, that's a good question. I, I don't know. I don't. I mean, I know, you know, with Robin Williams' death, there's been a lot of figures thrown out there about mental illness and depression. And um, I, I don't have the exact figures. I'm sorry. I, there's a lot of them out there. But, you know, I think a lot of it is depression. Um, and I know in a lot of suicides, there are, you know, drug abuse and mm-hmm. alcoholism seems to you know, be a common thread running through it. Um, but the different populations seem to have different reasons that go with them. Do you, do you think that the suicide of, of Robin Williams was a, an eye-opener to society that, hey, there's a problem here, we need to be paying more attention to it? Well, I would hope so. I mean, you know, I would hope that his death will bring, you know, some kind of opening around mm-hmm. this that, you know, there, there needs to be more attention paid. And, I, you know, I wouldn't say that anyone could have necessarily stopped it. Um, and, and I think that's one of the hardest things about suicide is that people get wedged between, you know, did I do something to cause this? Did I not do enough to stop it? If only I'd said this or done that. And, mm-hmm. you know, with, with suicide, I think, and particularly with Robin Williams, you know, once I make that decision, I've spoken to some people who've been suicidal, um, attempted and, and actually survived, and they said, you know, it is nearly impossible. There's really nothing that would have stopped them if they could have gone all the way. So I, you know, I hope that death does bring a lot of light on this subject and that people can start embracing, you know, this idea as something that is happening and, and something that needs to be explored with compassion and not so much judgment and fear. So in your opinion, as being a person who is actively involved in, in trying to as you say, uh, encourage a better legacy. Why do you think that it is so difficult for people to speak about suicide? Why is it taboo? It's a fact of life. You know, we deal with people who have cancer. We have de- we deal with people who are, uh, you know, that 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 are diagnosed with diseases that are life taking all the time. So why can't we talk about suicide in the same way that we talk about murder, homicide, or any other aspect that finally causes death one way or another? Well, I, you know, I think it brings, it's, it's an uncertainty. It creates an uncertainty, doesn't it? It's very unsettling to think that someone you know and you think you know well might be considering you know, killing themselves. And then when they do actually do that, you know, why didn't you see that? Why didn't you know that? And, you know, with murder or disease, you have a villain. You know, we have something we can blame. We have, you know, this, this cause that happened that the person did it or a disease did it. Whereas in suicide, the perpetrator or the villain, you know, for lack of a better word, um, is the person that you cared about. And so it's very difficult to, to blame them. It's difficult to blame yourself. And so, you know, there's a lot of emotional uh, distortion that comes mm-hmm. with suicide because people, you know, they, they don't really, really examine that. 
And it is a tough subject. And I think a lot of it probably goes back to historical taboos. You know, there are just uh, things that have these belief systems around them that we've never uh, really taken the time to take apart and question. And I think suicide is one of them. You know, we didn't talk about cancer 20 years ago or homosexuality. And I right. think suicide is probably up for its evolutionary kind of, you know, trip to the, the new dialogue, as it were. You know, I can, under- I can understand... Uh... You know a lot of things in life, but when it comes to to suicide, why isn't it why isn't it treated as if it was the end result of a disease? Hmm. Well, it's hard, isn't it? Because some sometimes, I mean, like you have this young woman here in the states who just this weekend mm-hmm. you know, made a decision to actually take you know her life because sure. she was sick. And, you know, then you have people, I mean, I don't know, Rob, maybe it's because there's so many different um, contributing facts Mm -hmm. to different kinds of suicide. Every suicide is unique. And whether it's depression or alcohol abuse or illness, I mean, there's so many different um, factors playing in there that I think it's very hard to trace it back, I guess. Now, have there been studies on the people left behind and the effects of a suicide on a family? Great question. Do you know that there really have not been any studies done, which is, again, partly why I'm doing what I'm doing. I, I've spoken to a couple of top researchers who said that they have really just barely scratched the surface. They've been focused on prevention and why people are doing it and mm-hmm. the population of, you know, of people committing suicide, but nobody's looked at the trajectory of, say, a young child you know, at 5 or 10 12 and how that affects their life. And I think I think they are starting to do it, but it is, you know, you talk about changing your life and talking your, t- changing your kid's life. It, it's amazing to me that they don't have studies. And, and I suppose it would be difficult to study on one hand, but it really, um, you know, it completely changes your, your kid's life and your life. And I think there probably needs to be some study. So how would you talk, I'm sorry, so how would you talk about it in order to, uh, um, you know, create a healthy family legacy then? Well, with my kids, I what I did was really stepped into the aftermath with a very open heart and open mind, and I was very honest with my children that I didn't have all the reasons why their father had done what he did and the yeah. choices that he made. You know, but I wanted them to be able to explore it out in the open right now, you know, live rather than twenty or thirty years down the road, you know, with alcohol and all these other things being poured over it, trying to figure it out with you know on their own. And I think. You know, it's a scary conversation. There's no question about it. But it's really just um, understanding to me that this person that has made the choice to take their life, they had free will, and they are now gone, and presumably, depending on your beliefs, out of their pain. And so what are you, you know, what are we, the people left behind, going to do with that? How are we going to either integrate that into our lives or what a lot of people do, never talk about it and let it become this entity that kind of controls everything, um, energetically, because, you know, as we all know, the, just because they're not talking about it doesn't mean it didn't happen. Exactly. And eventually, eventually, you know, this unresolved trauma is going to erode the family and the soul. So it's very important to bring it out in the open. So what are the important factors or the important things to to do in the aftermath of a suicide? Well, I think the first thing for me is I, I suicide creates a void. You know, you, you have a family unit or you have, you know, whatever the, the person is that's there that, you know, 
is now gone, Mm -hmm. there's a huge void there. And what tends to happen is that people just allow that void to be filled with shame and humiliation and fear, and and they don't actively curate and tend to the void and, and make a mindful choice to say, okay, you know, this person has made this choice. And, you know, I'm going to fill this space with compassion and and try and understand the choice and, you know, how does that fit into my life going forward. I think that's really important from the the get-go, to to give yourself permission, number one, to heal and honor honor yourself in this experience and, you know, really um, take care of yourself when you're going through this because there's a tendency to just kind of be haplessly blown by the winds of, you know, people pointing fingers and getting carried away with trying to avoid any sort of responsibility. And, you know, then you get lost in, in the mix in the aftermath of all this chaos. So uh, maybe you can help me understand this. I understand the social stigma that may go along with suicide. But what is the difference between a, a child losing a, a parent to cancer or an automobile accident or a crime? to suicide? Well, I would say there's a, a really, really big difference in that, you know, you have a child who is looking to a parent um, as a role model, mm-hmm. as somebody who is, you know, hopefully unconditionally loving them and, you know, guiding them through life. Right. And then they all of a sudden make the choice to, you know, essentially abandon the child and say, life is too hard. And, you know, remember kids, you know, perceptions of things are, are often quite different to what reality is. But, you know, perception can be that they caused it or that they should have done something different, you know, or said something different to the parent. And I think they then, you know, adopt this um, belief system around what the parent has done. Whereas when you have a cancer or a murder, you know, th- there is a cause that is outside of themselves and that they, you know, they're not going to look to themselves as being any kind of blame or, um, you know, reason for that death. But I, I think there's a lot of different psychological things that go with suicide that are very complicated for kids. I can understand that, and I, and I can appreciate that. But isn't it time that we say, hey, look, there was, a, there, you know, not to a child, but to, to each and every member of society that, who is old enough to understand that, hey, there was an underlying problem here. That mm-hmm. we just can't, yeah, you know, it's it's part of life. So how do we, how do we, this is the question I'm going to leave you with uh, before we go into our break that I have to take in a, in a few seconds here. How okay. would you prescribe to society on how to better understand suicide? Okay, so think hmm. about that. I'll give you a few All minutes. Right. And we'll be back on the other side of this break with the news. Exonation, Diana Bonney is my special guest. We're talking about the suicide epidemic. Her website is livingonthefaultlines.com. And we'll be back on the other side of this news break as we continue here in the Exxon from our broadcast center in Hamilton, Ontario, Canada. My name is Rob McConnell. Check us out online at www.xzoneradiotv.com where you can listen to the show 24-7, 365.
This is Elizabeth Joyce with Stargazing Week of November 3rd through the 8th, 2014 with the X-Zone. Are you still adjusting to setting back the clocks? At least we all got that extra hour sleep. Sunday is a soft day, one to rest and relax. At least we're through Mercury retrograde in two eclipses. The tone changes on Monday with an Aries moon, as we expect upsets on Election Day when the moon aligns with Uranus. Should prove to be interesting. Focus this week is on the full moon on Taurus on Thursday the 6th. The full moon is opposed by Saturn, Venus, and the Sun. You will be called into your emotional depths in order to restructure your values. This full moon is complicated and can be stubborn, intensely sensual, and may uncover feelings you have about relationships, secret attitudes, and what you've been hiding about your money issues. Taurus rules the throat, so is there anything you've had a difficult time swallowing? This has been going on all year, but we are in the final stages of Saturn and Scorpio, so it's time to clean up the theater and get ready for the new show, commencing on Christmas Eve when Saturn moves into Sagittarius. Beginning on the weekend, the third of Mars aligns with karma-giving and rebirthing Pluto, and this can bring in some negative, violent, and destructive moments. Give a wide berth on the road, as well as to people who are impatient or angry. Mercury plunges back into Scorpio as well bringing in communications that are secretive, manipulative, and accompanies the green-eyed monster, Scorpio. This is the best time to file for bankruptcy or foreclosure, as well as to be sure that your insurance coverage is up to date. On the positive side, you can apply your physical energy through meditation and visualization to transform your life at core levels. Pay attention to any anger and resentment that appear within you, and don't try to force any issues as others may have the upper hand. The moon moves into Gemini on the weekend and brings talking, communications, lots of short trips, quick errands while you're keeping on the move. It's not the weekend to begin any focused projects, or so just relax and take in a movie. <coughs> ideas are flowing now, but the ideas may not manifest. And for more information or a private one-on-one consultation with Elizabeth Joyce, visit her website at www.new-visions.com. That's www.new-visions.com. Explanation, my guest this hour is Diana Bonney. We're talking to Diana about suicide, and uh, there seems to be an epidemic of suicide. If you'd like more information about Diana and the work she does, www.livingonthefaultlines.com. That's www.livingonthefaultlines.com. All right, Diana, so how would you prescribe society to understand suicide? Mm, that's a big question, isn't it? I, I guess I would offer up that from, from my conversations and mm-hmm. what I understand about it, is that it's, you know, the, the person who's in that space really has come to a place where they're seeking relief. They're, they're in tremendous pain, and they no longer are able to connect to any other way out. And suicide and, you know, the other side represents that to them. So, you know, when somebody, uh, someone once described just to me like a horse on a racetrack with blinders, that, you know, all those horses see mm-hmm. is the finish line. And somebody who has made that decision to take their life is in a similar situation. So I think 
you know, unfortunately, our society is, you know, we're living in a time of sound bites and quick fixes and three solutions to, you know, your your life. And, and people really don't take a lot of time to step back and contemplate anything, you know, with any, any depth. And, and I think suicide really requires kind of an expanded emotional bandwidth, you know, as it were. You, you really have mm-hmm. to try and step into the other person's shoes to, to understand where, they, where they're at. And um, I, I met a kid about six months ago when I was at a media event in New York, and he overheard me talking uh, about my story, and he came up and he said, you know, could I talk to you for a few minutes? I've, I've been thinking about killing myself. He was probably 25. I, mean, I think about killing myself every day, and I don't know what to do. And I said, look, I'm, you know, I'm not a suicide prevention expert, but, you know, do you call the hotlines? And he said, I've called the hotlines, and they just tell me to get over it. My parents tell me to stop thinking about it, but I don't know what to do. And I said, well, you know, have you ever thought, has anyone ever mentioned meditation or energy work, like tapping, you know, where you, you tap on the meridians of your body? And he had never heard of any of this stuff. And I said, well, you know, your whole body is energy, right? And you have blocked energy from whatever emotional traumas you've suffered and different things. So he got that concept because he did karate. And he was very inspired by it and said he was going to go check it out. So, you know, I think going back to how to understand suicide, I I just don't think people have really stepped into a space where we're thinking of the body as energy and trying to understand all these um the traumas that we um, encounter in life as being things that can actually get us to a point where life seems too overwhelming to go forward. And if people aren't taught ways to release that energy or unblock it, I think then suicide can become the only way out of their pain, the only way to to get relief. What does uh, a physician-assisted suicide tell a person who's contemplating suicide? Does it tell them that it's, well, you know, if a physician is going to help some other people with diseases or who are facing, um, you know, uh, death in their own life, you know, it, how does this affect them? If, is, is there a rational behind it? So are you asking what, what does the doctor tell the patient? No, 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 no. What I'm, what I'm saying is if somebody is committing, you know, contemplating committing suicide and, we now have several states where physician-assisted suicide is legal. Does right. this give them, um, in their own mind, a justification for continuing what they're planning? Mm. Well, that's certainly the argument. I, you know, I mean, I've heard that, and you know, with that young girl that um, Brittany Maynard. Right. I, you know, a lot of the stuff on the internet has been back and forth about that, and I, you know, I think it's probably kind of a similar argument to legalizing marijuana. I mean, you know, every, they, the argument is that everybody's going to go out and start smoking pot, and yet, you know, we have legal alcohol, and you don't have everybody drinking. So I, I don't I don't necessarily subscribe to that. I mean, I, I, perhaps if you were thinking of doing suicide, you you know, you could use anything to justify doing it, and if, if there are physician-assisted suicides, I suppose one could use that as a justification, but I'm not sure about that. Okay, so how do we how do we put a uh, an end to this suicide epidemic that we're seeing? What can society do? What should the authorities do? What should the medical community be doing? Uh, I, you know, I, I think a lot of it has to do with going back to kind of old school values of connecting with people and, and really trying to. 
Um, I mean, as far as healthcare goes, I think all of us here in the States know that, you know, you go to a doctor and they spend all of two or three minutes with you and, Mm -hmm. you know, they don't, don't even put a stethoscope on you anymore and ask you, you know, questions that might lead to what the problem truly is. And if you look at um, some of the professions, doctors and dentists have the highest, one of the highest suicide rates. In fact, dentists have the highest suicide rate, I believe, in the medical profession. And, you know, that's kind of an interesting thing to contemplate. It, it um, what does that speak to? If the people who are supposed to be taking care of us are taking their lives, well, what does that indicate? And to me, you know, it indicates a lack of, a lack of connection and really a kind of a deterioration of the social fabric that I, I think really the only way that we can start putting it back together is by getting back to the basics of family and connection and community and, you know, really trying to listen to people when they, when they are speaking about their pain and not turning away because it's uncomfortable. These things are very uncomfortable to talk about, but we have to learn to tolerate that discomfort in order to rebuild society. What about the schools? Should they teach um, more about suicide prevention, what to look for? If, if your friend shows any of these symptoms, talk to them, try and get to see what the matter is, get them to a, a, a health professional, report them to a teacher. Should there be more done at the scholastic level? I would think there could probably be more support there. I mean, I, I don't I don't know on the level of you know, I haven't had a child attempt suicide. I've only I've only come into the schools from the angle of having you know trying to get support for my children. You know, on a parental level, of um, you know, which is kind of different. But you know, school didn't have a support group at the time when we went in, and when we went in and set it up, there were quite a few kids who who ended up coming to the support group, which was great. So I would say, yeah, I think you know, probably are things that people can do, to um, the schools can do. I mean, to create you know, a community and a sense of, hey, if you are feeling disconnected and lost and you need help, here's a place you can go without feeling shame or without feeling like you're going to be judged, and we will get you the resources that you need. What is it that you're trying to accomplish with going out, talking to people, um, these different media events? What is your goal? My, My primary goal is because my children are now part of this population of people left behind, it, it is really trying to open up the conversation for them so that it's not something so taboo. Um, I would say that, you know, like I said earlier, we, we didn't talk about cancer 20 years ago. We didn't talk about some of these other issues. I think by bringing the, the conversation out in the open, it's going to give my kids a place where they're not going to feel so isolated and other kids because it's a huge population, Rob. I mean, I, everywhere I go, and it's because I you know, have a tendency to talk about it, when I say what happened to me, mm-hmm. you know, invariably, half the room or more will say, oh, me too, my brother, my sister, my father, my mother. And it's always, you know, 10, 20, 30 years ago, and we've never talked about it. And it's quite alarming, you know, that there's all these people out there who have never had their, um, you know, this pain addressed in any way. They've just suffered silently. So I think those are the people that I'm really trying to open the space for so that they don't have to just suffer in silence and try and make sense of something, which is really quite senseless, particularly when you're doing it on your own to, you know, to a large extent. Um, but when you can do it in the open, um, you can put it in perspective and create an understanding of the person who made the choice as well as where you fit into that and how you can go forward with your life. 
So how would this how would this be accomplished? Just just by getting together, talking, uh, having group sessions, um, bringing in psychologists, bringing in clergy. How do, how would you see this being done? I think all of those methods. I mean, I, I would love to you know start creating really a movement and bringing people um, you know into. You know, if you look at movements like, say, the, the breast cancer awareness or mm-hmm. Live Strong or some of these movements where you previously, you know, nobody knew anything about, you know, these things, I think there has to be, you know, an awareness created around the actual population because most people don't think about the people left behind. And that's really my wheelhouse. I mean, there's a lot of great people doing, you know, wonderful work on prevention and all these other things, but not a lot of focus on, on the population I'm speaking to. And, um, you know, I think events, creating, you know, an event and having, um, you know, celebrities who have been affected by it start talking and and how it affected their life and how they've managed to, you know, handle it or heal from it. And, you know, just creating those little ripple effects out there. And hopefully then it can kind of spread and grow and give people a, a sense of community is really, I think, what it comes down to, that they're not alone and that there are, um, you know, this trauma, which is huge when it comes to your life, is not something that has to become the defining moment that the rest of your life is tethered to like an anchor in the ocean and you can never kind of move away from it. It's just something that you're stuck to. And, you know, by talking about it and creating um, discussions and bringing in, like you said, you know, clergy, healthcare, uh, different kinds of voices to it so that people have different sorts of options and they can see possibility again. I think that's what it really comes down to. What is there out there presently? Well, you know, not a lot that I've found. And the people that I've spoken to, it, you know, you, it happens to you. And what, what there is is kind of a frantic search on the Internet. And, you you know, there are some support groups. And I've gone to a number of support groups, and they're all very well-meaning. But what I have found, as well as quite a few people I've t- uh, met with, is, you know, they tend to cycle around the pain. There tends to be, you know, they're in there in five, ten years, and they're still talking about the event that happened five or ten years ago. And I don't think that 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 is necessarily healthy. And I, and this is nothing against support groups because I think you have to find what works for you. Yeah. But I think they're, you know, giving people um, some you know, idea that you can take this, this event and yes. you can dismantle it and that it doesn't have to be everything that your life cycles around, um, you know, for, for your entire life. But you just said a few minutes ago and, that, um, you know, it seems that in these support groups, people have been there for, uh, you know, years and they haven't gotten over the event yet. Am I correct? Mm-hmm. Okay, so if you were to form this movement, wouldn't you be doing the same thing by keeping the event in front of them all the time? No, no, that's not what I'm talking about. I, I What I'm talking about doing is giving people resources to, you know, number one, to understand there, there's a community, a population of people out there who are going through the same thing they are, mm-hmm. which is very um, reassuring. You know, you talk to any breast cancer survivor, and one of the first things they'll tell you is that knowing other people have been on their journey and, and you know, being able to identify with them right. is a huge part of their healing. You know, you don't, when you're in this population, it's very hard to identify with anyone because they're invisible. They're, they're very difficult to find. And... You know, when I say um, talking, what I'm talking about is a bigger scale of giving people resources, you know, teaching them 
how to meditate, teaching them some of these different modalities that they can help process this energy and move it through, not sitting around in a big support group and, and talking about how awful this was and, you know, how life is never going to be good again. Isn't, um, very, very but different. isn't it a possibility that, like you were saying, that this is one way that some people handle grief and it takes longer for some people to get over the loss than other people. So how do we how do we gauge who is right and who is wrong, which method works, which method doesn't? We'll be back on the other side of this commercial break as we continue and wrap up this hour here in the X Zone with yours truly Rob McConnell and my guest this hour, Diana Bonnie. We'll be back on the other side. So whatever you do, X Zone Nation, don't go away. And if you missed a show, you can always go to the archives at www.xzonearchives.com. That's www.xzonearchives.com. Diana, Bonnie, and I will be back on the other side of this commercial break. So whatever you do, don't go away. Exonation, Diana Bonnie is our special guest. Her website is livingonthefaultlines.com. Diana, tell me about your book. My book is in the process of being finished right now. I just I had it edited and I'm hoping to get it out to agents in the next month or so. So I'm really excited about that. Oh, so it's not out yet. I understand. What's it about? It's it's really the story of, you know, what happened and kind of uh, living an unconscious life and turning mm-hmm. away from things that you, um, you know, are, you, you see but you don't want to see and what can happen. And it's, um, you know, really it's about healing, you know, going back to your question about trying to get these people, you know, to make this choice. I mm-hmm. think that healing is, it doesn't happen by chance. It, it is a choice. And, you know, being a victim or suffering is a very it can be very powerful and I think people get addicted to it because it's um, it's a place that you can garner a lot of power, quite frankly. And so you know I I am fully aware that not everybody is going to hop on this train with me. I, mm-hmm. I don't you know it's like addictions and different things. People have to make the choice and say I want to feel better. I want to be healthy. And those are the people that I'm speaking to. Why don't you think that's the attitude they have automatically after the grief period that everyone goes through because life goes on? Well, as you said, grief is hard, and I, I would never take anyone's grief away from them. Sure. Everybody has to do it in their own way. And you know, when you say to somebody, aren't you over it yet, which is often said to people, I mean, it yeah. takes as long as it takes. But I do exactly. think there are proactive things that we can do you know, to to foster it and cultivate it and help it along as opposed to sitting in a room, you know, talking about the same story over and over again. I do think that our healing can happen um, if we make that choice and set an intention, you know, that that's what we want to create. But it, but isn't it possible the people that are sitting in the same room talking about it over and over again are, are, are in their own way solving this grief or, or communicating or being with other people who have gone through the exact same thing. Many authors I know write about their experiences as a method of, of healing. So mm-hmm. how, do we, how do we say, and, and you know what, I would never say to somebody, aren't you over it yet? Because I think that's the worst thing you can say to mm-hmm. anybody. Anybody. Yeah. If it takes you five years, if it takes you ten years, if it takes you five minutes, whatever the case 
that is your decision and your decision alone. So I think that there's a lot that needs to be considered in this entire scenario. I love what you're doing. And um, God bless you for the great work that you're doing and, and, and your dream. Well, thanks, Rob. I really appreciate you having me on. It's been a great pleasure having you on. Please do me a favor. When your book is out and available, contact me. I'd love to have you back on at that time. I will. I will do that. Thank you so very much. Diana, to you and your family, the very best. And uh, once again, I look forward to the next time you join us here in the Exxon. Great. Thanks, Rob. Take care of yourself, Diana. What a lady, Exxon Nation. Diana Bonnie is her name. And her website is www.livingonthefaultlines.com. That's www.livingonthefaultlines.com. She is a blogger, a healing advocate, and a soon-to-be-debuting author. Now, we've got to take a commercial break, but when we come back on the other side of the news at six and a half minutes past the top of the hour, we'll be talking more about the things that, that we talk about here in the Exxon the strange, the bizarre, how we can help each other, how we can help others, positive things in life. And yes, you know what? We are our brother's keeper. We truly are. I'll be back on the other side of this break. Don't go away. <laughs> 